Hey everyone, Happy New Year and welcome to 2024. I hope you've enjoyed the holiday season and had a chance to rest and relax to prepare for what's set to be another busy year in clean energy. Thank you again for continuing to tune in and listen to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. Your long-term support is so invaluable to this show and the clean energy economy in the state. For this episode, we're actually going back to an episode that originally aired in May of 2021 with a feature on North Carolina's role in the growth of the domestic energy storage supply chain. Remember, this episode actually aired before the signing of the Inflation Reduction Act, which really helped to accelerate the numerous EV and battery manufacturing announcements that have occurred in our state since. I thought this episode would be especially interesting to our listeners, given all of the momentum we've experienced since this time, to really understand what makes our state so unique in the energy storage ecosystem. And one other quick note before we kick off this episode. At the end of the day yesterday, January 11th, we finally received approval from the North Carolina Utilities Commission to move forward with the PowerPair Battery Incentive Program that's set to bring significant cost savings to residential customers interested in installing solar and storage in the state. The order authorized a $0.36 cent per watt incentive for solar panels and a $400 per kilowatt hour incentive for battery storage, along with a monthly incentive for customers enrolled in the bridge rate to allow the utility to discharge their battery during certain times of the year. We'll have more details on this order and what it means for the rooftop solar industry in our next episode, but wanted to at least provide a short update here. All right, with that, I hope you enjoy this episode from 2021. Hello, and welcome to the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, brought to you by the North Carolina Sustainable Energy Association. I'm your host, Matt Abel. Hello, Squeaky Clean listeners. Welcome to the 49th episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast, where we bring you the latest in North Carolina clean energy news, policy, and more every two weeks. Before we get started, we have a few announcements to share with the group. NCSEA's Making Energy Work webinar series kicks off next week on May 19th with a focus on electric vehicles. On this webinar, we'll be featuring NCSEA's very own Ward Lens, the Southeast Energy Efficiency Alliance's Ann Blair, and Korshanda Johnson of EV Noir. We'll be talking about some of North Carolina's EV goals, where we stack up against other states, and the importance of considering diverse communities when it comes to electric transportation. To register for the free webinar, visit makingenergywork.com. Next up, I wanted to share a quick update about what's going on down at the legislature. As you may know, North Carolina's General Assembly is in the full swing of our legislative long session. With that being said, we've seen a lot of energy-related pieces of legislation introduced up until this point that we wanted to share exclusively with our listeners, starting off with one very exciting piece of legislation that was introduced just over a week ago, House Bill 842. This bill addresses one of the most significant issues related to the growth and expansion of residential solar across the state of North Carolina. As many of our listeners probably know, Right now, homeowners associations are allowed to deny residents the ability to install solar 
if the installation is visible from a public thoroughfare, so something like a neighborhood street, sidewalk, or greenway. While HOAs cannot outright deny solar, they can mandate that the system be installed on an opposite-facing roof, which in some cases would greatly diminish the output of the system, eliminating nearly all of the value to the homeowner. Well, with HB 842, new HOAs cannot enforce the placement of a PV system through a deed or covenant that would reduce the operating efficiency of the system by more than 10%. Many of our listeners may be familiar with similar bills that have been passed in other states that are often referred to as solar access laws. The latest update is that this bill has been passed by the House with a vote of 85 to 29. Next, this bill is on to the Senate, so more updates coming soon. And the next bill I wanted to highlight for our listeners is House Bill 245, otherwise known as Efficient Government Buildings and Savings Act, sponsored by Clean Energy Champion Representative John Zoka. This is not the first time a bill like this has been introduced. Some folks might remember a bill introduced last year titled HB 330 that was very similar in nature. This year's bill directs the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality to develop a comprehensive program to manage energy, water, and other utility use for state agencies and state institutions of higher learning. It also establishes energy reduction goals for state-owned buildings, which include a 40% reduction by 2028 over the 2002-2003 fiscal year. The latest update on this bill is that it has passed the House floor with a vote of 116 to 1. This bill is now also on to the Senate. NCSEAs will keep our listeners informed of the next steps. All right, so that's a short preview of what's going on down at the legislature. If you want a full synopsis, I'd encourage you to become an NCSEA member. All of our business, nonprofit, education, and municipal members receive a full debrief of what's taking place down at the legislature, utilities commission, and within the executive branch every week. Find out more at energync.org. Today's podcast is brought to you by Mosley Architects, a full-service architecture and engineering firm focused on designing solutions, building trust, and enriching lives. Mosley Architects recently received a 2021 Energy Star Partner of the Year Award from the U.S. EPA, recognizing the positive impact their designs have made over the past 15 years. You can follow them on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. In other news, energy is back in the headlines this week as the Colonial Pipeline Company saw a cyber attack from an Eastern European hacker group bringing the 5,000-mile Colonial Pipeline that delivers 45% of all fuel consumed on the East Coast to a halt. The hackers were able to break into Colonial's computer system, encrypt their data, and demand a ransom to release control of that data. Of note to North Carolinians, word of the attack spurred panic buying amongst drivers across the state leading to widespread outages of fuel. As of recording, Colonial has said the pipeline has resumed operations and things should be moving back to normal in the near future. This incident draws lots of parallels to the OPEC shortages back in the early 70s, leading many to consider our dependence on fuel sources like gasoline. This issue really highlights the need to consider diversity in our fuel sources and have plans for alternatives when there are disruptions in service. Of course, it'd seem opportunistic to use this moment to push for EVs, but this really does highlight the need to consider other fuel sources, EVs being one of them. When we see disruptions like this in our fuel supply, we have other alternatives, like the electric grid, 
where EV drivers would be able to plug in directly at home and ensure they still have a fuel source to be able to get to where they need, like medical appointments, groceries, etc. For those of us listening in that drive an EV or know others that drive an EV, this week felt pretty normal. Being able to just go home, plug directly into an outlet, and continuing to drive wherever you need to go without concerns about the fuel that you're putting in your vehicle. Of course, there are considerations when it comes to charging uh, at home or via uh, public charging networks. We do still see outages uh, within the grid. However, many utilities are working to address that through different resiliency initiatives, through efforts like burying utility lines and hardening grid infrastructure. Of course, our our utility and grid infrastructure is still vulnerable to things like cyber attacks as well. So, of course, this moment really highlights the need to take a step back and analyze our infrastructure as a whole, our vulnerabilities associated with it, and making sure that we are proactive in addressing those vulnerabilities so this doesn't happen again to our pipelines or to our grid in which more and more people are going to be dependent on to get from point A to B as we continue to electrify our fuel sources. And then, of course, right, we're still at a very, very low market penetration of electric vehicles. So we also need to focus on why that is and how we can continue to drive that conversation forward. Things like making sure the cost of the technology is accessible to individuals across the board. So looking at things like supply chain, looking at incentives for electric vehicles, or looking at rate programs to ensure that customers are getting the best rate possible when they're paying for electricity to be used for their vehicles. So we're still a little bit a ways away from initial cost parity when purchasing a vehicle, but in terms of life cycle cost, electric vehicles over the life of that vehicle are still much less expensive to own and operate than a traditional internal combustion vehicle. So let's use this moment to really take a step back Look at what alternatives are out there on the table and also consider the vulnerabilities we have when it comes to our fuel and energy sources here in the United States. All right, so let's dive into the topic of today's pod, storage. As listeners may know, this technology has dropped precipitously in price while also being a perfect pairing for clean energy technologies like wind and solar that are driving the market for new capacity deployed. With the costs dropping, New benefits realized in widespread deployment of renewables, the demand for storage has grown exponentially. The exciting aspect of that growth is North Carolina's role in this market. Over the course of the next few episodes, we're putting storage in the spotlight and talking through North Carolina's role from the supply chain to new research and technologies to the market and policy. So on that note, we're focusing today's episode on the very first aspect of the supply chain when it comes to lithium-ion batteries, which are used for applications like electric vehicles and grid storage. We're starting with the extraction and refinement of the minerals used in those batteries, and we're going to the epicenter of development in this space, Western North Carolina. Clean energy. Today's guest on the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast serves as Vice President of Corporate Communications and Investor Relations for Piedmont Lithium. Our guest has over 20 years experience in similar roles, having served most recently as Director of Marketing, Corporate Communications, and Investor Relations for Sunoco Products Company, one of the world's largest paper and packaging companies. 
Our guest is a graduate of the Darla Moore School of Business at the University of South Carolina. Squeaky clean podcast listeners, please welcome Brian Reisinger of Piedmont Lithium to the podcast. Brian, welcome to the pod. Thank you, Matt. Happy to happy to be here. Well, fantastic. So let's just jump right on into it. So can you tell us a little bit about Piedmont Lithium and what you all do here in North Carolina? Sure. Um, so it's it's uh, kind of a long story that I hopefully I could make short uh, for your listeners. We, um, you know, lithium uh, has been uh, found in North Carolina in this part of the country called the Carolina 10 Spodumene Belt for quite some time. Uh, so from the 1950s to the late 80s, 90s, it was the primary source of lithium in the Western world. And at the time, it was it was primarily used for uh, the Defense Department for the for the most part. Uh, we didn't obviously have cell phones, PCs, the, th- and the, the things that are enabling you and I to do what we're doing here uh, today. Uh, so there wasn't, uh, you know, a, a market for for lithium or lithium ion batteries as we now as we now know it. Uh, there was a geologist; uh, he's our lead geologist at Piedmont, named uh, Lamont Leatherman, who's from Lincolnton, North Carolina. Interestingly enough, and this was kind of his backyard, and he started paying attention to uh, the growth of electric vehicles, electric storage, that sort of thing, and knew uh, the history of the, the Carolina 10 Spodumene Belt and conversations began and, uh, you know, over time a, a company was was formed. Uh, that is what we now know as, as Piedmont Lithium, but we've been really putting the company together since about 2017. So, so the horizon line for a company like Piedmont, where we're going to be what we call an integrated producer. So there's there's the extraction part of uh, the process of the actual lithium. Then there's the actual refining or, or processing of it into hydroxide. And, and so we're going to be doing all of those steps from our location uh, in Gaston County, uh, North, North Carolina. So, you know, Piedmont Lithium, uh, y'all are, are relatively new into the market here. Um, are, are you all currently extracting lithium yet, or is that coming soon? We are not currently extracting it. So it's, it's an interesting thing about this, this industry. When you think about it, um, you have to actually have to take the time to put your mineral resource together. So it's a, it's almost a, a, a real estate uh, function, honestly, in the beginning, and that you're you're kind of creating a land parcel, if you will, and and that occurs in different ways, even even in different parts of the United States and different parts of the world. So um, what's unique again about about Piedmont and our location in, in Gaston County is we're actually working with private landowners. To, to put our parcel together, whereas for the most part, if you, you go west of the Mississippi, 
those are federal lands, uh, the Department of the Interior, U.S. Forestry Service, uh, that sort of thing. You're not typically dealing with individual landowners. So we've been working for, you know, I guess the better part of four years, again, with, with individual property owners in the area to actually put this land parcel together. Uh, there's been exploration uh, going on over this time. So we'll, you can imagine kind of trying to triangulate uh, 2,300 acres of land to figure out where, where these veins run, where the, where the mineral can actually be found. And then you design, you know, we then design our, our footprint and, and figure out, you know, how we're, how we're going to do that. So that's really where we are now. We're getting, we're getting close to having the final land package together. We uh, have been, have done most of our exploration. Uh, things are considered um, inferred, indicated, or measured is kind of language that the industry uses. So, so we're moving along uh, that spectrum. Uh, we just got some research back recently uh, where, where the actual, our mineral resource, it, we expanded by about 40%. So we've got considerably more uh, mineral uh, that we have access to than, than we had thought originally. And, and that'll change our plans a little bit. And that's, again, I, Matt, that's a long-winded answer of saying we're in the early stages of this. That's a little bit of what goes into doing it. The timeline moving forward, directionally or roughly, will be early next year. Actually, begin uh, working working the land, uh, clearing the land, uh, starting to create what what will essence will be a quarry, which you may have seen as a kid growing up. You, you may have sw swam in one at some point. You don't, you know. We, you don't you don't really see quarries that often. They're always you know they're in, in remote areas and uh, and and that'll be the same you know be the same for for us. It's in the you know outer parts of Gaston County. Uh, so we have to create a quarry, and then the other two components are what is called a concentrate plant, and then the actual processing plant. So there's sort of three steps. There's the actual extraction. The, then there's a, an, an aggregation and, and kind of separating, concentrating part where we're working with what's called spodumene ore, which is where, where the lithium is, is found. But in that ore body, we also have quartz, mica, and feldspar. So that all gets separated out and then, then the lithium or the or the or the spodumene concentrate, if you will, then gets then gets processed into lithium hydroxide. And then for us, because of where we're located in the southeast, there are actually markets for quartz, for countertops, uh, solar panels, uh, so so solar glass, uh, and the mica and the feldspar also have applications in automotive industry uh, and, and various other industries. So we're going to be making use of, you know, almost everything that we, that we extract. And so the timeline for that 
two production for us of lithium hydroxide is probably the end of 2023, early 2024, when when we'll actually have commercial product, you know, going into the marketplace. Great. And and so just to, to level set here, many people listening in probably don't know that North Carolina is is home to deposits of, of lithium in the western part of the state. Um, so so why is that the case? What about our geography makes us so well suited for this resource? It you know, it literally is just a function of geography and, and the formation of the continent and and of North Carolina in particular. Um, so it's, uh, this spodumene ore is not found everywhere. It's, re- you know, it's relatively abundant, but, but it's unique to the, the, ge- the geology of a, a land area. And, and it just happens to be that there is a, a vein, if you will, uh, which is, I think it's about 30 miles long, maybe, you know, roughly three miles wide. Uh, that's that's in the area uh, that again have been mined in the past, uh, but we're not aware of it uh, being anywhere else in the United States. There is spodumene ore in Western Australia, where a lot of this work is done has has been done historically, uh, and also in uh, the northern parts of Canada. And, and to that point, I, I was actually going to ask you that follow-up question. For example, for the EVs that are on the road right now, um, for the batteries that are being used in our laptop computers, is, is most of that lithium being sourced from places like Australia? Yeah, yeah it is, Matt. So, so right now, probably, you know, directionally 80% uh, of the lithium is found either in Western Australia uh, or in Argentina and, and Chile. And, and they use two different processes actually to, to extract and, and refine uh, the lithium. So a lot of Western Australia would be similar to what we'll be doing in, in Gaston County. That's what they call hard rock uh, extraction. That again is a spodumene or it's you're you're working with a quarry, you're concentrating it, uh, and and then that actually gets shipped to China for that to be processed into hydroxide. In Argentina, uh, Chile, some other parts of South America, it's actually comes from a brine. So it's a, which is again is a unique. Uh, it's kind of like a, a groundwater uh, deposit, usually in the high deserts uh, in, in those parts of the world. Uh, so it's a, it's in a liquid uh, brine form, and it gets pumped into into ponds. So if you can imagine a series of oh football field size ponds, if you will, uh, where the, the material moves from pond to pond and the purity increases as it as it moves, but it's being evaporated. So, so that's how you you in, you get to a carbonate when you use that process. So it's primarily Mother Nature 
that, that's doing the work with the brine, although there's some there's some companies that will use uh, natural gas to to impact that process. But but there are two different ways of, of getting at something. And so so yeah, so you have so you're working with these two these two different processes. Uh, and when you're working with the brine, it becomes a carbonate first that then is converted into hydroxide uh, if that's the final if that's the final use when you're going from spodumene or we will go directly to lithium hydroxide so it's a it's a reduced step uh, process and and again it's kind of driven by the source of your of your mineral and and then what you're trying to to produce in the end um I think a hundred percent now of spodumene ore that is converted into lithium hydroxide for use in lithium ion batteries is done in China. You you had talked about a little bit earlier, um, actually, you know, finding forty percent more resource than was initially expected. Um, so, can you just talk about the the potential for growth in this market here in North Carolina? Thinking about you know potential jobs and and kind of the footprint of of Piedmont Lithium because it sounds like there's a lot of opportunity here in North Carolina. Yeah, there you know there is. I, I think again the uh, while this the Carolina Ten Spodumene Belt is is a rich belt and uh, there is a mineral resource here that that could could provide a, a great deal of a of a source of lithium for a U.S. supply chain. As I mentioned earlier, it, it's still also dependent, though, on individual landowners in this instance uh, who, you know, are, are, are willing to sell. So that's that's how we would have to grow here, uh, unlike uh, going to the federal government and, you know, buying land out west or um, Canada operates in a, in a similar way. You know, they're a natural resource rich country. Uh, the government owns a lot of that land. So it's a, it'll be a little different for, for us in North Carolina in terms of, of accessing, uh, the actual spodumene ore. It's there. The potential certainly is there for it to expand even more. Uh, you just, you know, you just have to have the cooperation of the of the community and the individual landowners uh, to to do that. Uh, w- one of the things for us as a as a company, while we are, when I talked about us being an integrated producer, where we we are have put our 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 mineral resource together, we will be extracting, you know, our own material, processing our own material. The actual refining or processing step of this, uh, the material would would not have to come from uh, our location in Gaston County. So, uh, a spodumene concentrate from somewhere in Canada could could actually be shipped to us, uh, and we could process additional tons to serve the U.S. market. So. Uh, Piedmont Lithium, as a as a company, r- right now when we do a, what we call a pre feasibility study, 
we're, we're going to produce 160,000 tons of spodumene concentrate that will be converted into 22,700 tons of lithium hydroxide. That number is probably going to be revised up, uh, given what I was said to you about the expansion of our mineral resource, which was a fairly recent occurrence. So, so the next phases for us is we will do additional what we call scoping studies. Then we will do a definitive feasibility study. And so the actual output projections will probably change pretty markedly for us as we get towards the end of the end of the year. So you, you talked a little bit about the, the process of, of refining. So what after extracting the lithium, what all needs to happen to get that material ready for prime time and things like electric vehicles and storage? So it's it again. It has to be it has to be concentrated, and and you're removing uh, impurities. You're trying to isolate the actual lithium from other materials that would be in in the rock, uh, and and then it goes through uh, a processing operation. I am not a chemical engineer, Matt, so I won't. I won't be able to explain that extremely well, but it you know it uses the sodium carbonate uh, and some other other materials um, and to to process that into hydroxide. After that, then you start thinking through uh, how to make a lithium ion battery, and our market for lithium hydroxide. Uh, it could could be to could, could be to different people. Um, the 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 main operating system, if you will, of a lithium ion battery is a cathode, and so so you have a, and and a lithium ion battery is made of a cathode and an anode, and the cathode is where a lot of the actual chemistry formulation takes place that is built primarily around the, the proportions of things like iron, phosphate, cobalt, and nickel. And and if so if you if, if you do a show on lithium ion batteries, I'm sure you can you can get into cathode construction. Um, but that's so there are other, in addition to in addition in addition to lithium, you know, we're all hearing more about uh, rare earth minerals, critical minerals, that sort of thing. So there there are other minerals involved in making all of this work. You can't make any of it work without lithium, but you you do have to have nickel, cobalt, you, you know, those other kinds of, of minerals. And, and then what's happening in the, in the battery industry, like, like in any industry, um, new technology comes along, some really smart person figures out a way to make something work better, faster, uh, more power, that sort of thing. And, and right now the movement is to have more nickel in the cathode uh, which does a couple of different things, but but the main thing is that that's really where you add range to a battery, which is what a lot of people 
uh, when they think about electric vehicles, how do we get them to go further? And and so the, typically the more nickel uh, that is in a battery, the further uh, range you're you're going to get. Um, there's been talk about there's a company called QuantumScape. I think Bill Gates was involved in it. They make a solid. You know their their vision is to make a solid state uh, lithium ion battery. It's it, it still requires lithium. Uh, it, it gets rid of some of the other the other minerals, uh, but you're still going to have to have lithium even even when a when a solid state battery happens. And I'm I'm curious, and I know this is kind of outside of the the scope of of Piedmont lithium, but. Are there battery manufacturers that are here within North America or the United States in which, you know, some of the material that you all are extracting and refining uh, could be directly provided to or sourced to? Yes. So it's, it's, it is growing. Uh, I, you may have, have followed, you or some of your, your listeners, uh, there is a, there's a battery, large battery plant uh, being located in Georgia. Uh, there was one that was just announced in Tennessee, so it it is it is growing, and and that's part of the you know it's part of the part of the challenge of of this industry, at least in the United States as it stands now, uh, in that while we have uh, automobile manufacturers with Tesla, you know GMs, you know almost every day you're hearing someone announcing. They're going to add electric vehicles to their fleet. Uh, the the supply the supply chain when it comes to the actual uh, battery manufacturers and cathode makers, we do not currently have those certainly in a critical mass in the United States. I, I, I someone will probably correct me on this. I don't believe we have a cathode manufacturer at all. Uh, but we are, we, we do have and will have uh, battery manufacturers that will actually put the cells together and, and su- supply them, you know, to Tesla or to Volkswagen or, or to BMW or Volvo or, who, you know, whoever is, is adding an, an, an EV to their fleet. Yeah. And, you know, ideally we get to a place in which, you know, basically the entire or all the components for the electric vehicles are are sourced here in the U.S. As you mentioned, right? We have a number of manufacturers that are here, like Tesla, and if we can, you know, extract the the minerals here that are required for the batteries, and then are assembling those batteries and delivering them to the OEM, um, you know, how great would that be? Uh, and so uh, it's yeah, fantastic, fantastic, and and I think you know, underlying all this, Matt. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. It's probably where you're. Maybe where you're heading anyway, you know, it's, um, look, this is all aimed, uh, obviously towards, uh, you know, some kind of carbon neutral world. You know, we hope that we can, we can get to and, and finding ways to make things more sustainable. And, and a contributor to that is the actual supply chain itself. So, so even right now, uh, our, our CEO at, at, at Piedmont says that the, the, the average lithium molecule, uh, as he describes it, travels about 25,000 miles. So when you, because the supply chain is so fractured geographically, um, 
And so obviously, if you're able to uh, get a critical mass in the United States, um, then, you know, that in and of itself is, is going to be helpful because you're, you're reducing transportation distances, you're, you're closer to the customer, you know, as people say, in, in the industry. Uh, so all of that helps from a general sustainability uh, message, just again, from a, from a transportation standpoint. And it positions the the U.S. to be a world leader in an industry where the writing's on the wall. I mean, all the manufacturers are moving towards electric vehicles. Governments across the the globe are setting really ambitious records or uh, goals when it comes to EV deployment. North Carolina, uh, we have a goal to have eighty thousand electric vehicles on the road by twenty twenty five. So it's always great that we have you know a company like Piedmont Lithium right here in our backyard that's within the supply chain of electric vehicles. Um, so this is, this has been fantastic, Brian. I really appreciate you taking some time this afternoon to join us on, on the podcast and tell us a little bit more about what Piedmont Lithium is doing here. Uh, and I'm excited to, to follow you all as we get, um, closer to extracting some of those minerals and refining them here, uh, in the state and, uh, seeing those, uh, in, in future storage projects. Uh, so, so Brian, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Uh, no, look, you're, you're, you're very welcome. Enjoyed being able to tell our, our story. We think it's a, it's a good one. You know, our, 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 look, our goal is, is to be the most sustainable, uh, environmentally conscious producer of, uh, lithium hydroxide in the world. And we, we believe through the technology and the process, we're, processes we're using combined really with a, a very unique location in North Carolina will allow us to do that. Uh, we're, our, our plant is going to have a captive solar farm uh, to actually to power our operations. Uh, so the location itself is, is it's really a, a major part of our, of our success and, and great access to a workforce long-term for us you know, we're, we're estimating the creation of somewhere north of 400 well-paying jobs, uh, certainly millions of dollars in, in tax revenue for, for the county and, and for the state. And, and then what we'll just simply give back as a corporation because it's the right thing to do. So, uh, again, happy to, happy to join you and uh, love, love to come back again. My key takeaway from today's episode is North Carolina's opportunity to help further onshore the supply chain for electric vehicles and grid storage. With the increased demand for lithium products, North Carolina's spodumene reserves position us to be well-equipped to handle the growth of the industry, further drive energy independence, and further decrease the cost of storage technologies, especially with the growth of domestic EV manufacturers like Tesla, Rivian, Lordstown Motors, Proterra, and the new to North Carolina company, Arrival. It only makes sense that we look to produce the batteries and materials that they're comprised of here in the States as well. With clean energy as one of the fastest growing sectors in the country, I'm confident that storage will play a large role in that growth moving forward, especially here in North Carolina. So stay tuned as we stick with storage for our next few episodes to continue to highlight the connection between the industry and North Carolina. 
And that's a wrap on this episode of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast. But before you go, it's time for another version of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Every episode, join us as we travel to each corner of the state to tell you the story of clean energy and the value it brings to our local communities. Along the way, you'll also have the chance to learn a little bit more about each of the communities that call these projects home. So on this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler, we're heading over to the northeastern part of the state to visit Hertford County and Northampton County. And to lead us on this journey is NCSEA's own Energy Program Manager and Duplin County native, Daniel Pate. loyal squeaky cleaners the past two episodes of the north carolina solar traveler have seen us venturing around the southeastern part of north carolina but on this segment we're going to pivot due north to two counties in the northeastern part of the state where there is no shortage of exciting clean energy developments going on that's right not one but two counties So get ready for your double mega edition dose of the North Carolina Solar Traveler as we shine the spotlight on Hertford and Northampton counties. Arguably the most notable solar project in this area is the Allander Holloman Solar Facility a solar farm located in Hertford County. This facility opened in August, 2019, and it is through this facility that Fifth Third Bank is able to claim a 100% renewable energy goal for its operations. And it also made Fifth Third Bank the first Fortune 500 company to offset all of its carbon footprint through renewable energy. This facility consists of a total of 350,000 solar panels, and that squeaky cleaners is enough to power 25,000 homes. Not to mention the myriad local benefits, with millions of dollars going to the tax pace in Hertford County. NCSEA did a Squeaky Clean Energy podcast episode on September 12, 2019, called We're Banking on It, where you can hear coverage and interviews from the grand opening of this solar facility. Speaking of that episode, here's a quick clip from former North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality Secretary and now EPA Administrator Michael Regan. You know, it's a tremendous opportunity to highlight what Governor Cooper and I have been saying from day one, which is environmental protection and economic prosperity are not mutually exclusive, but they go hand in hand. And what you have here is a big major bank committing to 100% renewable energy and investing in that in one of our rural counties in eastern North Carolina. This is great for economic development, it's great for the environment, and it's great to see that technology and markets are leading the way. According to NCSEA's Renewable Energy Database, Hertford County has 18 clean energy systems with a capacity of over 175 megawatts. Northampton County has 21 clean energy systems that have a capacity of over 548 megawatts. 
Usually here is where I dazzle you with a smorgasbord of fun facts about the County of Focus. But today, we're going to do one big super fun fact. Hertford and Northampton counties make up part of the territory of one of the most innovative and cutting-edge utilities in the nation. And that utility is Roanoke Electric. Roanoke Electric has always prided itself on leveraging clean energy strategies to serve its member owners particularly notable given that its territory is one of the most economically distressed in the state. In particular, the utility's residential energy efficiency program, Upgrade to Save, allows member owners to receive home retrofits at no upfront cost and pay back for the upgrades through a charge as less than the energy savings, resulting in a cash flow positive scenario for the member owner. You can find out more by watching a video about this innovative program by going to thestoryofcleanenergy.com. And here's a quick clip from that video in which Marshall Cherry, COO of Roanoke Electric Cooperative, talks a little bit more about their territory in northeastern North Carolina. Our area here is one that has really has not experienced any growth in well over 30 to 40 years. And so with that, obviously it does bring challenges in the fact that we do not have business and industry in this area that will generate wealth creating opportunities for families. And that presents a very unique challenge for us and our leadership team and other stakeholders here at Roanoke Electric. And that's not it. Roanoke also deploys community solar, electric vehicle charging stations, smart thermostat programs, and other services, all focused on providing a higher standard of living for their customers. Roanoke, we salute you and your innovative approach to utilizing clean energy to produce benefits for your member owners and the community in general. And that's it for this week's episode of the North Carolina Solar Traveler. Speaking of Roanoke Electric Cooperative, Utility actually just hosted a ribbon cutting ceremony about a month ago for a new electric vehicle DC fast charging station in Roanoke Rapids, just off I-95. So if you're taking a trip through North Carolina on your way down or up the coast, make sure to stop in and charge your vehicle in Roanoke Electric Cooperative territory. Follow us as we visit other projects and counties from throughout the state as part of this ongoing series. If you have a project or story you'd like us to cover, drop us a line at info at energync.org. Right, let's stay in touch on Twitter. Give me a shout at Matt Abel for future episode ideas, questions for our next episode, thoughts on today's episode, and your worst energy joke one-liners. And episode 50 of the Squeaky Clean Energy Podcast is in the books. But before you leave, don't forget to rate, subscribe, and share the pod on whatever platform you're listening in from. Sharing this podcast with your network and growing the friends of the pod helps us get just a little bit closer to our shared vision of a clean energy economy from North Carolina. All right, that's it. See y'all later.